I mean, he's been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 153 of 8 Bits Interview Podcast, powered by Audio Technica. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and I am joined today by one of the OGs of gaming on YouTube, and that is Pat Contry, aka Pat the NES Punk. I discovered Pat through the Cinemassacre YouTube channel. A lot of people would know Angry Video Game Nerd, and that's where I first saw Pat on the Nintendo World Championships episode from like at least 10 plus years ago. And I've followed Pat's work since then, so it was cool to sit down and chat with him about everything he's done, because Pat's a guy who has really done well to diversify his content. You know, he was in that era where there were a lot less people on YouTube making content, a lot less people making gaming content, and he was one of the first, but that wasn't enough to just sit back and do that. He's followed through with, you know, the growing trends and technology, and he's been able to keep his fan base while expanding into podcasting and doing more commentary, less kind of in-character reviews and that kind of thing. And now the latest venture, he's been able to capitalize on his experience as a collector. You know, he's got this insane Nintendo collection to release or write and publish the ultimate Nintendo guide to the NES library, 1985 to 1995, cataloging literally every game on the Nintendo, that original Nintendo console. And and since then has followed up with the Super Nintendo version of that book and he's now working on a Nintendo 64 version. So really pivoting into that publishing space to, to use, I guess, his experience and his knowledge of games and of that kind of retro library. It's really cool to see someone that has found a way to, like I said, stay relevant, turn his hobby into a professional career and uh, do all that without pandering to, I guess, some of the trends we talked a lot about the YouTube algorithm and the way that that has held a lot of content creators hostage as far as the content they make and the way that they present it and the way that they market what they do and the topics that they cover. So yeah, Pat is really an original dude. He's one of the OGs and it was really great to have this chat with him. So without further ado, here's the NES punk, it's Pat Contry. Enjoy the show. Pat, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I've... um known about you for for a long time so it's it's great to meet you how did you i was always i'm curious how people discovered my work especially i think you're a bit younger than me how you first yeah stumbled across my i guess my youtube career uh what's what's the most common thing because that's probably um, and, um <laughs> what it was for me it used to be path the nes punk videos i guess back in the day so i'm then and flea market madness which has been around since 2009 pretty early um mm. so those were probably the, the two biggest two biggest ways people discovered me and it's always interesting when you hear like people that are like in college now or older it's like yeah i grew up watching you and it's like wow i've been doing this a, a longer time than i want to realize i'm an old timer when it comes to you yeah so the way i discovered you was through cinemassacre like the videos you did with with james at angry video game nerd and i assumed that a lot of people discovered you that way just because he's got such a huge audience is that something you hear a lot i do but the interesting thing about the nintendo world championships video which came out i believe that was 2011 like the fall of 2011 or so something mm-hmm. like that or two, I, I got it the time doesn't mean anything anymore 2010 it might have been <laughs> um the, the thing about that i think it was 2011 was that it was on game trailers wasn't on youtube for like a full year so for an immediate right term not many people discovered me it was kind of a I hate to say a letdown but it was it was because it was obviously a great video a big collaboration 
and it went on game trailers and it's like people had people thought i was just an actor i actually <laughs> had some people say to me i had no idea you're you on youtube so i thought you were just you just were a guy who showed up in this video it, i think it wasn't until it, it came out on youtube like six months to a year later then i started it started you probably saw it started to come game trailers though was a totally different beast back in the day yeah, that was that's like the YouTube was certainly how I got onto it, and it, it might not even have been like it could have been years after it originally posted as well, because a lot of his content's just evergreen. Like, oh, yeah. obviously, he's talking he's talking about stuff from the '90s and the '80s, so it's as relevant now as it was back then. But we might um we might dig into your origin story, Pat. So tell me about I guess what it was. I'm guessing video games is going to be a very <laughs> present theme here but your your childhood and the the road towards content creation like were you always messing around with with video was was it a natural thing to merge your interests with games with uh some kind of media career I, I as a child i i think i still own it i had a tape recorder i used to do i used to like play act with the tape recorder along with my sister uh, even, I think I remember doing something where I would like, I'm like calling a baseball game, you know, I'm an announcer. Yeah. <laughs> There's ones where I'm doing a skit with my sister, I'm singing. So I always like performing. I always, always wanted attention as a child in that respect. But in terms of the, the modern sort of creativity, um, in college, um, I, did a, I, did a, I did a film in college. I did a couple of short films after that. And I, I started collecting video games before college. And that went through all through college. It was like a through line. So once you get to the mid 2000s, you know, where I'm like, got my own job, I've moved out. YouTube starts getting bigger in 2006. In 2006 is when James Rolfe started to upload. And I remember that fall, this is like, I had a new job. I had a, I got to turn off my, was that my Discord? Uh, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, I'm sorry about that. I'll, I'll shut that off. That's fine. Um, I got a new job. I had my new place and then I put up my games on the shelf there for the first time instead of just having them in boxes and like my parents, you know, attic. And then I discovered, you know, I think I saw the first video of James that I saw was him doing, I think it was a Friday the 13th review. So that was like fall 2006. That was like 15 years ago, a 15 year mm -hmm. anniversary of him being on, on YouTube. And I was like, this is interesting. A guy doing short films who obviously loves the old stuff. He's putting on a character, but it's they're very entertaining. And I, and I knew a decent amount about Nintendo games at that point because obviously I was a collector. I've been collecting. I've been collecting at that point for almost ten years. So I said to myself, you know, what? Maybe I should do something with this. I had I had a mini DV standard definition camcorder because 2006 there was no real HD yet. We're still two three years off from that. And I remember going on YouTube and it's still on there. And it's not. I'm not meaning to call attention to this video. I don't want to shame the person. But there was a review. I say that loosely of Three Stooges on the NES. It was like, like the only video on YouTube covering Three Stooges on the NES. I must have looked it up. And it was a really bad video because the person was playing on an emulator in real time, probably using like, like a Gateway 2000 stick mic. If you remember those stick mics, these come with computers, the terrible ones. Mm -hmm. And the person had no knowledge, not just of the game. They had no knowledge that the Three Stooges were an old short film entity, you know, from like the thirties and forties. Right. Okay. So it was weird. I'm like, I could, if the, my work, I said to myself, I can at least do better than this. <laughs> at least I can inform people about these games, do a little character, I guess. And, you know, do something entertaining, have an outlet for it. I, no one was watching my videos for the first year or two, you know, but at least I thought I could like translate my small 
film knowledge and my knowledge of, of Nintendo games into something, you know, unique for myself. Right. And it's interesting that, um, you know, I brought up James as kind of the way that I discovered you. And it sounds like that was a influence on you understanding that there was an interest at least in, in that kind of, of content. Is that fair? Yeah. It, the structure of his videos were, were interesting to me. Um, mm. Obviously, I didn't cover the angry ass. People say, oh, you were a ripoff. And it's like, no, we, I mean, I don't think I don't think James would have befriended me and worked with me if, if I was a ripoff of his work. Um, but it, his structure was interesting. Like it was mm. it was it was edutainment in a way because you'd have like an intro, you'd have some skit stuff, you'd have an outro and you'd have you know discussion of of a game. And sometimes it was bad, obviously, but sometimes it wasn't. And that was what mm. was interesting to me was that that structure of how he did it yeah it's, it is interesting like watching it and there's moments throughout his videos where his actual opinions seep through like yeah it's, it's james it's james talking not the the nerd and like i know for, for myself like as someone you know i'm 33 i grew up with a sega mega drive as we call it over here and pretty much my entire nintendo knowledge in hindsight came from watching like his videos and, and content from people like you. So it was only like in more recent years that I've gone back to occasionally play games that people have said were good, not bad, like Mega Man and, you know, Castlevania. And, you know, it's so much, they're so much more accessible now with like your classic, you know, Nintendo classics and all these kinds of like virtual libraries and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I love that, that people like yourself and, and James have been able to promote that to a younger audience so you must have a lot of people have those that kind of feedback about your content i think it, that doesn't come off as often but it, it like when i go to conventions or see comments from people that like are in their 20s or teens i'm like there's no way they they discovered this stuff naturally <laughs> they had been some influence yeah. i think that's what really surprises me more and more is you see the younger people that are mm. when i say younger like early 30s or younger didn't grow up with the nes so because they, they were born like in the late 80s they're growing up with the super nintendo or, in, or nintendo 64 yeah. by that point or the genesis slash mega drive so it's that's what really is like you see that generational divide by by game by game type really by by console type and it's interesting and i, I guess it shows that like people were wanting to search for this stuff or maybe they, they found it randomly with the algorithms like oh let's watch this goofball with then short spiky hair you know play these games and get into misadventures somehow you know and and i don't know it's it's interesting when you look back if, if i retire from all of that that might be an interesting legacy it's like i i not only educated people on some of these older consoles and games but then some of them went out and, and wasted their money on buying all these <laughs> these obsolete game consoles and games mm. well especially especially because you're one of your angles is that you're a collector right so i guess you may have fostered an interest in the collecting side of it as well and inspired people to waste even more money. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I get those emails <laughs> almost every week from people still. It's like, yeah, yeah, you got me into game collecting. And I'm, I'm like, that's good, sorry. but now I wish I hadn't. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, it's like I, with everything crazy now, it's like the past past four or five years, it's been bad even before that. It hasn't, it hasn't been easy, easy-ish easy to collect in like obviously almost 10 years. Right. Um, 10 years, the price has gone up a lot, but um, no, it's flattering. I'm glad I turned a lot of people on onto that and, and trying to, that's why I try to educate people on what to watch out for and the pitfalls. And there are obviously right. bad actors out there, which is why we talk about the, 
all, all the graded game shenanigans going on. And yeah, it's just something that, yeah, I, 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 when I got into this, I didn't think I'd be influencing other people to get into it. I just, I didn't look at that as an angle. It was more about, more about, okay, I'll educate them about the games and not necessarily collecting them. Mm. But it makes sense. Flea market man is people like hunting for things, you know? That's it. It's probably, and it, it was probably the era where it's becoming easier with eBay and, you know, th- stuff like that too, to just find things. Oh yeah, it started happening though by like the early two thousands, late nineties or two thousands. Yeah. It's been twenty. Yeah. I mean, I've been on eBay since ninety eight. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think I I'll- mean, like the, the right the rise of your channel. I mean, was probably around that that time where it was it had become a lot easier and more accessible, and people were more comfortable with spending money online than. Oh yeah, previously. by the late two thousands, yeah, it was pretty secure mm-hmm. by then. Even yeah. before that, like PayPal was a, a thing by a major thing by the mid two thousands. Like we were, we're not, you're too young to remember when we I used to mail out money orders to get games, literally <laughs> mailing out money orders to get stuff. Yeah. It was that, or like yeah. there was a couple of online payment solutions, but people didn't trust that stuff yet. It wasn't as secure, you know, 20 years ago. Mm. Okay. So we've, we've covered how you started making this content. How, how did it tend to take off? Was it because you, what you were doing, as you said, there weren't many people, doing it at the time there was one three stooges review therefore yours being better meant that it stood out and slowly things progressed from there um it it didn't take off i think that's what's interesting is that people look back and thinking that it was it, they were getting a lot of views they didn't for like the first few years uh when i mm-hmm. did the video with james i believe was that was 2011 i only had about seven thousand subscribers five or six or seven right. i can go back and, look at that, and it only gave me only it will still be the time like a couple of thousand subscribers i still was under ten thousand subscribers i know that i know there's a a different scale now with youtube subscribers so like a thousand subscribers back 15 years ago is a lot more than a thousand subscribers now i get that but i did not have tens of thousands of people watching my videos Mm -hmm. you know i would be lucky if i got five thousand views on a video that would be like a big video for me uh at, at the time so it probably didn't really start to tick up more until the podcast, which was 2013. It probably took a good four to five years. And the podcast, it was I had I had about 75, 80,000 subscribers before the podcast started. So I'd say a couple years before that. But it took, like I say, a good three years to get mm-hmm. people to watch me. Then between, we'll just say years four and five is when it kind of started to go up. And the podcast helped to take off more in 2013 because that was more regular content and the algorithm was in favor of that back then with a lot of like short videos and and it's changed like four times in the past eight years but that's really what i think when the view started really 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 going mm-hmm. up was around probably 2012 13 okay so despite the i guess in your by your description not having this incredibly huge following you were still part of that i guess old school crew like some of the pioneers of making gaming content for the internet so how did it feel to be part of that crew alongside you know whether it's james and nostalgia critic and some of these people from that generation well before you know what we have now with influencers and and you know youtubers and twitch streamers and all this kind of stuff yeah we were more like just personalities right and in the, in the stone age um if it <laughs> did feel like a community in, in some aspect because you go to a convention and everyone knew each other like magfest like people from that guy with the glasses some of them knew who i i was and and i knew their work i was uh, you know i obviously i worked with spoonie fairly early on he was like gigantic back in like 2009 and 10 and 8 like earlier on 
Um, so it was interesting that we kind of knew each other and it, it did feel like, a, like, I guess like a small community. There were clicks, obviously some people didn't like each other and there's always drama with people, but that was an interesting part of it. I never got caught up in that, in the drama or didn't want to be in a click. I never was into it for that. It was more about, okay, let's make cool content and hopefully people like it. But, um, mm-hmm. it, that's how I, I did get validation about my work. When I said like, I wasn't getting views, you know, if I put out a video and it got 300, 400 views, like a new NES punk video. Oh, yeah, that's fine. 300 views. Uh, but then like somehow the content creators knew my work. So uh, that what to me was, was like, that was respect. That was like, they knew yeah, my work. They were paying attention. Yeah. They, were, they were paying attention. Like I went to a convention one time. Uh, I went to like MAGFest 2010. It was the last one in the old hotel before they went to the huge one near DC. And uh, Linkara, uh, the, the comic book uh, reviewer, he got over and over. He goes, Hey Pat, I, I know your stuff. And I'm like, he, at that time when Carl was one of the biggest, you know, online personalities on that guy with the glasses, he's still big, uh, Lewis. And the fact that he knew my work, the people were like, all these, all these people were like around him as like fans, like, like, but he like pointed me out and all, I remember this, all the fans looked at me like, who the hell is that guy? Like, I don't, I don't forget that. That was a very interesting moment in my quote unquote career. If that makes sense, right. so I had the respect yeah, of the I, I had the respect of the content creators, but like people didn't know who I, who I was, like the, most of the people. Sure, and so you, you just said quote unquote career. So when did it become a career option? When did it become something that you thought you know you've got this real job for a long time, and you realize like maybe you know if, if things fall the right way, this can be my primary focus. Um, it didn't ever become it. I basically quit my day job in 2000 in summer 2012 because i was just sick of it it was killing me <laughs> i was super stressed out. i was working long hours long stressful hours and not really making that much in comparison to the work i was putting and so i quit it, it took a long time to mentally recover and then uh we did the, we started doing the podcast about a year later and in between that i thought about things i was still doing videos but it was a, like a, i was in like a, a malaise um so in 2013 we started doing the podcast it's not making any money I'm, I'm making money off blip, blip TV basically still. I wasn't really, I always, I wasn't partnered, I think till 2013. So um, it was like side money doing that stuff. It wasn't, I think until 2014, 15, I was like, okay, I got to start producing revenue to, so I can still live in my condo in San Diego. It's not cheap to live in San Diego at all. And then I started to like come up with like, okay, t-shirts. And then I think I did the first couple of, of DVDs and sold those at conventions, you know, things like that just to keep me going. Then slowly mm-hmm. the podcast the podcast took, took a good year and a half to, to take off a year and a half to two years before people really started to pay attention to it. Uh, Cause the podcasts weren't really listened to. There wasn't a lot of them and it's notoriously hard to monetize podcasts. So thankfully the YouTube thing worked out. So it wasn't until probably like, I'd say at 2015 where I was like two years after quitting my day job. I'm like, okay, now this is like a career. I'm like, this is going in a positive direction here where I can survive and make some money and save some money and pay my mortgage off. Yeah. Right. That must've been a really difficult period between quitting your job and making it work. Like were you, was that stressful trying to find ways to, to, to turn this hobby into your career? You must've been thinking and naturally questioning whether it was the right thing to do. Uh, I'm trying to remember my mindset. I didn't have a choice really i wasn't gonna go back yeah. to what i was doing sure. my mental health was terrible uh i was stressed out eating i think I remember saying i looked gray when he would see me like i just looked like dead it was just like my soul was like sapped for me 
So, so what was the job? What's that? What was the job it that you're doing? Online market research, I used to do. Right. Um, yeah. And so it was like client based, it was deadline driven and just like, no, you're doing well, great. We'll throw more work at you. One of those sort of things. Right, so right. the salary was not worth it. Well, the salary was not commensurate to what the time and effort I was putting in. So yeah, I, I don't think there was a choice. Then I came up, then we came up, Ian and I came up with the idea for the book in 2013 as well. So like the 2013 was a big year. It was like podcast is starting idea for the book. Okay, let's go. And obviously that book took three years to actually come out. It's a three year journey. So I'd say those were rough years in terms of like, not for making money. I was fine. I was making ends meet. Uh, you know, I, I did have some revenue coming in from YouTube and blip and, you know, t-shirt sales and the DVD. And I, I remember I still had a bunch of spare consoles from the swap meet. So I was selling those, I think through my, I think I sold those through my, uh, my DVD Kickstarter to be like, Oh, you get, get the DVD and a, a Sega CD console. A Sega Genesis. I, I was doing stuff like that to move stuff out. I, I was doing stuff like, you know, get 10, 10, a mystery pack of 10 games and, and with, with your DVD for a certain amount of money. And that's, and that's what kept me going for, for a few years. Then obviously once the Kickstarter for the book happened, which was like March, 2016, I believe was the Kickstarter because it came out that September. Um, something like that. Yeah. I looked that up when the Kickstarter was once that happened. And I said, Oh, okay. I have money to do this book and I could, you know, make this something. That's really when things turned, I think was 2016. Like five years ago, was when okay. things really changed and be like, okay, now we're on solid footing. This was a really good decision ec economically, not just, you know, not just in terms of, okay, this is fun to do and it's not killing you, if that makes sense. And that was also that year, the rise of things like Patreon, which have made it a lot easier for content creators to do their own thing. If they've got like a loyal following, it doesn't have to be you know, millions of people, but yeah. people that actually are passionate about it, which sounds like your fans are, if they were keeping your rent paid with DVDs and t-shirts and whatnot. Yeah. 2016 was, was the year we also did the Patreon. So I was, so I had the Patreon, I believe was that year or a little bit before that, but that's when it started getting, so like 2016 really was a turning point hmm. five years ago. I, okay. I did the Patreon. When, when did I do this Patreon? I'm trying to see the first, I think, oh, it was, it was 2015. Okay. So that book was 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 almost eight nine. Uh, that month, that book was nine months delayed. It was supposed to come out December two thousand fifteen. It came out. It came out a full pregnancy later, in September two thousand and sixteen. I see. So I did that. So two thousand fifteen is when I got the money to do the book and realized, okay, I made a good decision investing. At that point, two and a half years into the book, or almost two and a half years. So that was really the that was really the turning point. End of two thousand fifteen into early two thousand sixteen. That was probably it. Okay. Right. So. I'm interested in your, uh, like, it sounds like as someone that started out old school, you know, making these YouTube videos when it was not every like second person on the internet was a YouTuber or a Twitch streamer. It looks like you've been really great at pivoting to whatever's the new thing. So podcasting before, you know, uh, before 2013, it was much less common i guess for just every person to have a podcast like they do now mm -hmm. and that's when you started doing it so has that been a focus as well just like keeping up with the not getting stuck in in the old ways of of hoping that you know eventually this is is, is all i'm going to need to do 
I don't know. It, it's weird. Like the podcast came about because Ian and I used to gab at at his game store, and like we should make this a podcast. You say that now, like, oh, we should do a podcast. But like in 2013, <laughs> not everyone had a podcast. Now everyone has a podcast. Back then, yeah. eight years ago, it was not a thing you did really. There wasn't a lot of big podcasts back then. I think on, on Apple, the iTunes Store, there may have been. There was probably only like 20, you know, 20 to 50 gaming podcasts. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't or less mm. than 100. And not a lot of independent ones outside of like IGN and GameSpot and like the, the big boys at the time. There might have been another one that's been defunct the past eight years. It was more about let's do something we enjoy and hopefully an audience finds us. That's what it's always been about. The book was more of like, well, this, this is going to be enjoyable until you actually do it and realize it's hell on earth. That's what the first book was. I know basically all yeah. the books. But I, but I'm, but I realize is that, and I got ahead of the curve of that too, because back then there wasn't really video that many video game books, and now they're coming out every month, you know. So, yeah, I guess I just been not lucky. I just sort of can read the tea leaves a little bit when it came to some of this stuff. But it was more about let's mm. let's do something we enjoy, and let's try it out. And it looks like that's become such a big part. Like, is that probably more a significant part of your workload than videos these days? I know that they're podcast videos, but the, the conversational stuff sure I, I mean yeah the, the 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 podcast is every tuesday we record that i used to do two podcasts the other one was actually pretty successful but i couldn't keep up doing two podcasts once the pot once the cu podcast went weekly i couldn't do the not so common podcast anymore which is a shame because a lot of people enjoyed that and in terms of the download numbers uh, sometimes that one got more views slash downloads than the, the, the cu podcast did so it was a shame. And plus, I got to talk about politics and social stuff and weird shit that I wanted to. So it's almost like, yeah, the conversational stuff always came naturally to me out of, out of everything else more so than because uh, I hate editing videos. I like writing. I like writing and I guess conversation. Those are my, my strengths. So whatever I could do, whatever um, angle I could take to get to get that as a vocation, I guess it's worked out in some ways. I guess maybe that's why I've kept up with the books. Even the books have turned into more project managing and editing responsibilities and production mm. versus straight writing. I do write in the book still, but it's a very small amount compared to the entire team. So yeah, I guess, I, I guess I've gravitated towards what I've naturally been acclimated to. Sure. And as someone that's been doing content for longer than some content creators have, have been alive, <laughs> how do you see the difference between uh, you know, people like yourself and Twitch streamers and the influencers of, of today that are coming up? Is is there a difference or is it just the new version of it? I think the difference is this, and we talk about it in the podcast sometimes, about I think it's a lot different when someone has worked various outside jobs versus almost being born into or evolving from a young person or child into being like a, an influencer, mm. if that makes sense. I mean, all sure. the influencers, for the most part, are young. They're like teens, early twenties. They haven't been. They had didn't suffer with you know office jobs for the most part, or you know work bagging groceries like me, or working in you know what I mean. Like they had. So yeah. I think it's a different perspective. They think it's like a lifestyle versus a, a career or job. It's not a lifestyle for me. Being on YouTube, I stream on Twitch once a week. I don't consider myself a YouTuber, or like I don't consider myself a. a a Twitch streamer. I don't consider myself an influencer, even though I technically am to, to like advertise and sponsor. This is all different jobs to me as part of one larger, you know, content creation career. I think that's the difference. I think probably not all, but 
a lot of these younger or newer influencers look at it as that I'm an influencer. They run around saying that, like I'm an influencer. I'm an Instagram influencer. You know, I'm on Snapchat or I'm or I'm or I'm a um, I'm a Twitch streamer, and it's like that is not my identity. Pod, the podcast is part of what I do. I don't see it as my identity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mike? Yeah, you're not a podcaster. You're just a I'm Pat. Creative, yeah. <laughs> I'm Pat. I do podcasts. I produce books. I'm a game collector. You know, I mm-hmm. like yoga and 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 cats and you know that's like that's what I am. And punk. Eh, well, in the name. <laughs> sure. So let's talk about the books. Um, I've published a couple of books myself, and I know how much of a process that is. So tell me, like you've touched on it already a little bit, but tell me about the origin of that. Like the first book, I'm guessing it was the Ultimate Guide to Nintendo NES, right? Ultimate Nintendo, the Guide to the NES Library, 85 yeah. to 95, which is the the natural lifespan of the console. So we sure. So tell me about how that came together and what it was like to realize how big that that task was. I think at the time, it was, again, this was it was after I quit my job. You know, it's 2013, and I'm like, I want to do something. I want to leave my mark. I said to myself, I'm never going to review every game, and let's do something that combines my natural love of writing with Nintendo stuff. The same way, like I, I combined Nintendo stuff with the filmmaking. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, okay, let's do this like Leonard Maltin's film guide, but for NES games. No one had done that before to that extent. There have been, I think, books that r- talked about games but like didn't focus there was no books that like really focused on just one library and and did a great job of it and so i said let's do it and ian said yeah let's do this and so originally that's that's what the plan was is that we both would, would put in an equal amount of work on the book and basically cover 50 percent of the library each and write the reviews and it, you know it would, it would have been a total 50 50 collaboration uh, unfortunately ian had to drop out the 50 50 thing but he still worked on a lot of reviews and he did a great job and i took on the shoulder uh you know i I shouldered most of the load and then i had to hire other writers to help finish it which was not was not the plan at the time but fortunately it got done but it was it Mm. was not fun for like a good year and a half of my life to help not just write more reviews but then now i became an editor for the first time i hadn't really edited before i was always decent at writing but not editing others works and this like i said it hadn't been done before to that extent there hadn't been one sort of source to, I mean, I really in depth discuss every game in a console. This isn't a quick description or blurb. It's not like a mm. quick three line thing. So it was a, not a small task. And that first book was like a rough template for the Super Nintendo book that would follow, which was a much better uh, book in comparison. Not that anyone, well, I'm proud of it, but like I learned my lesson from a lot of stuff in the NES book, the same way I learned from stuff from the Super Nintendo for the N64 book that's uh, being written right now. So um, that's basically how it came about. And thankfully, mm-hmm. there was an audience for it because when I did the Kickstarter in end of 2015, I had no idea how many I would sell. There was nothing like that on the market to know what I could have sold 10, 100, 1,000. I had no idea. That was, that's what made it scary and cool. But I'm glad there was an, I had built in an audience online that was like, mm-hmm. okay, Pat, we know you, we're going to, we like your stuff. Let's, let's throw down 60, $60 and go for it. So thankfully it worked wow. out. Yeah. What did the Kickstarter reach in the end? Uh, I just had it open. Uh, 144,600, 2,085 backers. So I was, okay. I was, I was happy with that when I, I think we did it during the NES marathon, charity marathon. And I think, it reached 20,000 
within the first like four hours because we, I, I think I, I started right before that marathon that year. That would have been the seventh mm-hmm. uh, marathon, I believe, or six, six or seventh one. I was like, wow, okay, this was a good decision. <laughs> I, I, I hit my goal in one, one like less yeah. than a day. I'm like, this is good. Is that the point where you realize this was a lot of work, but it's very worth it. And this is what I'm going to be doing for a long time after this. No, I didn't think about that. I thought it was going to be a one-off because like, yeah. it, like it, it killed me working on that. Yeah. Um, so I thought, all right, we'll do the first one. And we'll move on to something else. But then I was like, you know what? I'm probably the best person equipped to do the Super Nintendo book. So when I was finishing up this one, I had it out. I know I said, okay, I don't want to do another book. But like quickly, I was like, let's put the plan together for you know, a new book. I think I gave myself mm-hmm. like that most of that year recovered then we started production on the the superintendent book in like i think it was like early 2000 late 2016 early 2017 is when we started it right yeah and that's was that just as long of a process i know you brought in more people to help with it like my friend dagan moriarty has talked about good old dagan he came in on the the efforts yeah the, the efforts that he's put into to reviewing these games for you and and the enjoyment of, of actually getting to write something and review what made the the second one like the, the the super nintendo ones in your words like so much better than the first book more diverse writing team uh at that point we had established the nes one so there was more hobbyists i believe writing it for the nes book and they did a good job uh we, we, we replaced out a few writers for the third print because I just looking back, it was wasn't up to snuff versus the rest of the team. They still got paid, you know, so it was fine. Uh, but on the superintendent book, we had we had attracted due to the success of the NES book, the fact that a lot of people, you know, thousands of people had it. Uh, we had attracted, I think, a higher caliber overall of writer. And I had a I had a good editor, uh, Ashton, on that uh, superintendent book. So I took on less direct editing responsibilities. It was a little more hands off. And uh, I, I did uh, 80 reviews, which was like 10% of the library, down from 450 from the NES book, which I don't know how I did that. I have to go back and rewrite because <laughs> I probably did a, I probably, I hate to say, I probably I might have phoned in a few of those last ones on that one. But um, it was it was a much better design. I'd learned a lot of, uh, mis- mis- I consolidated what it means to really rally a team together and 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 look for a cohesive single singular sort of style even though you have you know on the, on the superintendent book we had like a i think a dozen writers on the nes book mm-hmm. we had about 10 i believe nine or ten so i just i just learned more and more about the process and yeah it was even it was it was a better book and the n64 yeah. is going to be at least as good as a superintendent if not better than that All right so there's plans to just keep going and going as long as the consoles keep coming out, I don't or know you stop that. at a certain point. These, these book, I mean, this this book's only going to take from start to finish two years versus three, three and two and a half for the first two. But mm-hmm. there's um, it's a lot of pain and time and money invested before you see any sort of uh, payoff yeah. financially or creatively. That's the problem with these projects that take two to three years. It's like working on a movie. It must be the same thing. Like, right, you know, from a, a movie's almost total come from writing to post-production is usually like two years. And um, I don't know how many times I can go through it before I'm like, I want to move on to something else, you know, mm. but ask me, ask me if a few months after this book gets released, it's hard once you're, it's like Daniel Craig <laughs> yeah, playing sure. James Bond. Whenever he, when he's filming, it's like, I don't want to do this ever again, you know, but like, then he, okay, all right, write me a bigger check and I come back. <laughs> Yeah. 
it's like a parent with a, a newborn. They're like, oh, this is good. Like, I don't need more kids. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> let the kid get to a year or two old and yeah. another kid. <laughs> okay. So I'm curious, like, your original plan for this book, was it to be a educational resource or was it more of like a, a nostalgia appeal to people? Like, I want to have a book that encapsulates my, my childhood or it may be a bit of both. I think it's a bit of both. And I, I came up with a design... I will brag about this, about it really was the first sort of thing where, okay, we're going to do it like an academic, more academic or more so review and then have the reflection section underneath where you can go historical, you can go personal anecdotes. I think when Mm -hmm. Norm, the gaming historian reviewed it, he said, I actually enjoyed the reflections more because it was more personal stories and it was more talking about some of the historical and weird stuff, but you have both, you get both in these books. That's why I, that's why, well, I say I like it. I mean, I, I did that design. That's why I did that design. I, I, mm-hmm. And I remember that design came somewhat f- from, I didn't think of it on my own, but for games I did. But it, I remember the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode guide had that sort of like, we'll do a drier description of, you know, the episode underneath. We'll get a personal reflection from one of the writers or actors on MST3K to get more behind the scenes. So I'm like, you know what, that's a good structure because you get everything. If, you, if you're the type of person that says, I don't want, I, I don't want any subjective uh, nonsense you know, in, in my review, even though you're going to get some of that, you know what I mean? Like, or like weird style stuff, like you get that, but then you get the reflection stuff where the writers can spread their wings more and talk about what's interest, interesting to them. Sure. I'm interested, like the, the, on the business side of it, like, did you have to get copyright cleared to include screenshots and that no. kind of thing? Or is it, it's just covered under like commons creative commons or what like it's fair, fair use. use or whatever yeah, yeah yeah you're doing a review you're allowed uh-huh. to, you're allowed to use assets when you're talking about something and to like review yeah. or, or when you're writing or doing a video or document you're allowed to otherwise no one could ever do anything if they needed permission mm-hmm. no i mean no yeah. one so trademarks there's fair use for trademarks there's fair use for uh for copyright as well when it comes to like the images and things as long as it's not like like i think bitmap books got in trouble with nintendo on one of their kickstars might have been the famicom one because th- th- it was presented as like a, it's a, it was a digital art book really it was like big huge splash pages so i think nintendo's uh, nintendo was cool with them they went to them i believe and said like okay you can do your book but you have to do some writing you have to like write and talk about these things you can't just like sell a book <laughs> of our you know our digital yeah. assets basically so that's when you look at my book, it's mostly writing. Obviously, there's screenshots, but it's dominated by the writing. So that mm-hmm. is, you know, the definition of fair use. Yeah. And as the editor, are you trying to unite the uh, different writers into like a kind of singular voice, or is it very clear like this review is by Dagan and this one's by Pat and this one's by someone else? Like in terms of like everyone has their own writing style. The writing styles maintain with within some reason. You have to have a structured review that's somewhat similar to each other to explain. You, need, mm-hmm. you know, every game, every game review has, you know, um, it starts with like the background and genre of the game, and like perspective. Then you go into the gameplay mechanics. Then you go into like you know, uh, extraneous like multiplayer elements and options. And then you talk about like the visuals and the audio and things like that. And, and then you sum it up. That's basically, for the most part, give or take, what a game review is. And so you mm-hmm. have to do that if you're reviewing a game. You can you can have your own writing voice, but you have to you have to work within that playground that's established for the team. If that makes sense. And yeah, some right. some found freedom with that. Some didn't. You know, I'm more of an ABC writer when it comes to like um, the review. It's more like nuts and bolts or some flourish. But I'm not like you might read my reviews and be like, 
I can't tell that's a guy who writes the Pat the Aeneas punk videos. Maybe you can, but for someone like someone like Dagan, very colorful, more flourishing writing that his writing and mine will be very different. We'll convey the same things about the games, but in a different mm-hmm. way. And then the reflections, you know, obviously carte blanche at that point. Yeah, right. It'll be interesting with the Nintendo 64 book. I'm I'm curious how that will go because it's a it's it, it is like a new audience. Like there's people in their mid 20s who grew up. That was their first console, and whether they have that same level of nostalgia uh, as obviously we've seen from the sales of the first consoles you've covered. I would think so. the only thing is that that's not my prime audience. My prime audience is a little bit older. Mm-hmm. So if I market it to my audience. I uh, hopefully they'd be like, I hope, because I hope they'd want to buy it, right? Why am I doing it? I, I hope they would be like, well, I have the first two. I like the quality of the first two in the writing. Let's get this console, even though I, I by that point, I might have been a teenager or going to college, but at least, mm-hmm. you know, I can still learn about it. I, I, it's really weird. I was 50 50 on Game Boy or N64. I started, I decided on N64 just because I think people are more, more nostalgic for it. And it is a younger crowd that now, if you grew up with the GameCube, you're in your 30s now yeah so late 20s to, to like you know early 30s so i i think that made more sense plus there's a lot less games there's there's four there's 400 games including the japanese one versus like a thousand game boy black and white games so i said okay this i said to myself knock on wood this would have been easier <laughs> but it wasn't because of the the massive emulation issues and it was it's oh. weirder to wrap your head around the, i think the 3d games versus still the simple game boy games you can probably review most of the game boy games you probably can play through most of the, those game boy games like in a half hour a lot of those games are so simple. There's not a lot to those, especially the first generation of Game Boy games, you know? Um, so I took that for granted too, that these games took a lot longer to play than the NES and Super games. I thought the mm. whole thing would have been done in a year. Like, I mean, like the old, all, everything written in a year. And we're at like a year and almost a half, and it'll be closer to a year and a half. So I, I misjudged the timing a little bit. <laughs> okay. So... Uh... It's, it's great talking about the books. You talked about the t-shirts and DVDs and, you know, I'm sure there's other creative projects that you have in the pipeline. So how important it, or how essential has it been for you to diversify as a content creator so that it's not just the podcast, so that it's not just the YouTube channel? Like, is that something that you tell people that they need to do if, if they're not doing it and they're trying to make it into content creation or to, to make their hobby as, as someone that makes gaming content into a, a career? Well, you can't, it's hard to diversify if you're just doing it as a hobby because of how much time do you have? Like how much time would you mm-hmm. have to do a podcast and do videos and do a book and, and produce the video game years, you know, and do the do documentary stuff. Like no one would have mm-hmm. the time and have a 40 hour job. So I, the advice I give the people starting out or doing it is like, just do what you love. Try to put a unique spin on it. Talk about or do what you know and what you love. And then hopefully you find an audience. And if you don't, at least you like what you're doing. Even if like you're like me starting out the first few years and getting, you know, less than a thousand people watching your stuff, at least you're enjoying the process. And at least you're getting, you know, even the small community you've built, enjoy it. That's what I, that's what I tell people. Hmm. Don't worry about diversifying until you, you have a career of it, if that makes sense. Like once you have an established career, you know, then you can worry about, okay, how do I not grow stagnant doing the same thing? How do I worry yeah. about what if YouTube goes belly up and there's an apocalypse, you know, then you, that's when you start to worry about, should I not put all my eggs in one basket? If you're living that influencer life, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, you do see it happen, don't you? People who rely on YouTube for revenue and then, yeah, like, like you say, ads, ad policies change or, or same with Twitch. The and algorithm, suddenly, algorithm changes. Yeah. Algorithm changed a lot for us. It was like spring in 2018, three years ago, three and a half years. It like changed where a lot of our older videos weren't get recommended anymore. Not just me. You can talk to other content creators. Older videos used to be constantly like seen like in one of your top videos was not getting recommended anymore. People weren't discovering it. And YouTube changed to be more driven on like a new cycle by that point and more it was more right. content it changed to be more content focused versus channel focused it used to be like you watched a video that someone did it would recommend those other person's videos now it recommends that that subject by other people mm. so that was a big change and that hurt a lot of us where it was like wow okay so now either you do something that's up to the minute important or something so good it gets over with the audience really quickly or people won't see it they won't go back it won't get go won't get recommended back to them after a certain point yeah it is interesting as like a i guess a casual youtube observer i'm interested in your opinion as someone that's like literally been part of that ecosystem for 15 years or 16 years um or however long it's been the the way that youtube has changed the algorithm but also the the habits of viewers the trends from content creators you know obviously it's easy to make fun of every single thumbnail has someone looking shocked as they react to something mm -hmm. and if you don't do that then people aren't going to click on your video or i don't know whether it's youtube that places those as a suggested content so <laughs> how do you how do you balance keeping up with what is going to get your video scene versus being true to yourself as a, a creative that's that's the that's the magic question right how do you stay motivated and like what you still do but keep up with the algorithm i've not done the best job of that myself because i just like screw the algorithm if, yeah. if i if i listened to if i went by the algorithm i would have been obviously a lot bigger i would have been doing like modern games and top 10 videos several years back when that, they were all the rage i would have been chasing that the problem when you do that is you get locked into that the problem when you do that is that then people are no longer watching your stuff for you. They're watching it for everything around you, if that makes sense. They're watching it for the subjects you are doing or the style that you're doing, but they're not following you. They're not going to follow you everywhere. Yeah. That makes sense. When the style changes and if, if you don't keep up with it, they're going to leave you for something else. And I never wanted to get trapped in that. Mm. Never wanted to. Because then, then it becomes, I really said that it, then it becomes, well, I talked about career before, but then it becomes a job you don't like. I mean, it's still better than, you know, you know, uh, looking over the deep fryer at your local <laughs> McDonald's. But like, I would, I never want to get to a point where, wow, I'm making videos just to make them and I don't enjoy this, but that's, hey, it's what the algorithm wants. I need mm -hmm. to get my YouTube bread that month to, to pay my bills. I never want to be in that situation. Never. That's why yeah. I consider myself yeah. a YouTuber, uh, part and parcel. And that's why I'm glad I diversified into like several different areas, uh, because of that. So I never had to get into that. That, I mean, I can't, I guess it depends on your situation. It's one thing I can say the advice be like, it depends on your situation. That's what it depends on. You want to, yeah. you want to sacrifice maybe a slight, like 10% of your integrity in order to keep pace with the algorithm 20 percent, 30 i mean that's a personal decision i don't i'm not going to get on people for doing that but i've seen people semi sell their souls to that and it's like yeah we know what you did we, I know, we know why you did it. it's unfortunate i could never personally do that myself yeah i'm guessing that people like yourself that have 
been around the block a few times. You've got uh, fans and supporters that have just been there for a long time too. So you, you risk losing that loyalty if you cater to, you know, the algorithm rather than what made them fans of you to begin with. And then if yeah. you do make that sacrifice, you're suddenly finding yourself in a position where you have to keep up with the algorithm because you've lost your loyal fans, you've picked up new ones, but then as the algorithm or the trends, even you could just talk about it from that perspective, as the trends change, you have to keep changing and you have to keep on top of, of what's evolving. Otherwise it's just a constant thing where you don't have your loyal supporters. You've only got the ones that are there because of the trend or the algorithm. So it, I can see how it would be appealing, I guess, to have the luxury of having loyalty and goodwill with, people over a long period of time and that certainly comes from you know your dedication and consistency over many years you've put yourself in a great position with that kind of thing i appreciate it. i hope so <laughs> <laughs> i hope i know people people are appreciating some of the work i've been doing or else i don't know what i'm doing i'm well, still here time. so something's working i'm sure you've seen many people come and go in that time who oh you, yeah you might, have, you might have thought that they're more popular than you or better than you or more talented or whatever um, but uh <laughs> It's coming on. It's interesting when you see people like I, I know a lot. I won't tell people. I've seen people, a lot of people, because I started out a lot of people that were also starting out where I was at. And I, I mentored a couple. I, I, you know, I gave advice to a few. And some of those people blew up and are huge now. They're huge. And it's interesting to see that progression and you see where they go and the type of people they are. Um, what I will say is that YouTubers aren't different from people in real life. We all have our various behavioral issues and egos and you see mm -hmm. it translated over to a, an entertainment medium. You're not shocked when you see the results and, I, and for the good people, the good people that start out like uh, Gerard, uh, you know, the completionist, very good person. I start, I, I, I saw him grow from nothing to the superstar he is now. And it's fantastic. So you see how the good people do it and you see how the people that, you know, maybe things go to their head and everything in between and it's interesting that you, you see that happen like I'm, I'm happy i i got into this when it was still fairly new i could have gotten mm -hmm. earlier if i got in 2006 or 7 i probably would have been i would have been bigger because there was even less people there was even less people you know even a year or two before but um you can't think about it in terms of just pure talent because that's not how youtube works it's, it's not yeah. talent based it is to a small degree but a lot of it's algorithm and content based not just okay is this person good at editing or good at speaking it's more about what are they talking about? When are they uploading? You know, how consistent are they? And yes, there is a talent involved, but talent is like a portion of what it takes to succeed on YouTube. It's obviously a chunk of it, but it's not even 90% of it. You, you, you wish it was, but that's not how it works. Yeah, I guess if it was talent plus hard work equals success, it would be very simple. But the internet and I guess everything in, in general, there's a lot of luck whether you want to call the algorithm luck or not, it's, it's a different topic probably, but yeah, I think for it's, some people. It's it luck be. if you have been doing that and the algorithm shifts to pr promote your content and promote, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, It's, it's worked it's, in my favor once way back, but then it's turned against me. You know, I'm sure it might, maybe I'll come back and do it again. You know what I mean? Like maybe, but mm. it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to be super creative and also pay attention to that stuff. It's hard to do both. Mm-hmm. Sure. So this is putting in work. I like to ask people about the, you know, the, the trials and challenges. So what's been the hardest part of getting to where you're at now in your career? I guess I, um, the most difficult aspect of getting to where I'm at now, I guess, I don't know. I, I never expected it to be something simple, 
it's not like it was not an over nothing I ever did was an overnight success in my entire life. It's, it's always been like just good enough to get into it and work my way into it and then struggle and hopefully find find the audience. Um, I guess it was like maybe just getting over that hump of, okay, I'm doing this, this stuff. I know I have the talent to stand out a little bit, but still the audience hasn't found me yet. You know, and I guess that the, the first few years, you know, were kind of like mm. that, I guess. Yeah, right. I usually also ask people about advice. We've covered that a little bit, but aside from like diversifying once you've, uh, you know, made this your career, what what is your advice to people just starting out to to get to that point where they can go from just uploading a video and or uploading a podcast to, to making it into something that builds momentum to the point that there's actually some dollars that can come into it? I would think that unfortunately, you always have to think about business. Um, business and creativity can co coincide. They have to, you always have to think about, you know, will this help me get to where I want to be? I guess if you want to think about it in terms of business and, and making money to make it a career, you have to always have to be mindful of that. More importantly, you have to have discipline. And we didn't talk about that. You need an extreme amount of discipline to, to be a self-starter self, you know, content online content creator. It's an incredible amount of discipline. You need to do that or to do anything to work for yourself, to do a book, to do a, to do a DVD, to do music on, you need an incredible amount of discipline to get out of bed every day where you can, hey, I can do whatever I want and go to the zoo. I could, you know, go outside. It's like, now you have to be disciplined and treat, to treat this deadly seriously to some aspect. Yeah. You have to show commitment to the craft, so to speak, and no business at the same time. That's what's unique about being, I guess, an influencer in that you have to uh, learn as you go but hopefully get good advice and follow good examples yeah now I, I like what you said before about people who've who've worked normal jobs and and that is the difference between some of the i guess the younger influences and people who are, are a bit older it, it reminds me of um you know some sometimes you see these hollywood stars that don't make it until they're much older and they always seem to be more grounded and more likable you know ricky gervais is, is a guy that no one knew who he was till he was 39 harrison ford wasn't famous until he was like 35 or 37 years old you know like not that he's a <laughs> not that he's a friendly super he still was doing carpenter work guy. He, was, he, yeah, was, but, he was doing carpenter work after star wars still yeah, yeah but these are the people that they don't i guess buy into the the hype of being yes. a celebrity is probably the best way to put it yeah they're like um, they treat it as a job it's a profession, yeah. but it's not, it's not their entire life. Yeah. Yep. And they shy away from the celebrity status and the culture that, that comes with chasing that kind of thing. But anyway, that's a different topic for another day. Um, Pat, my last question for you is if you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? I always wanted to be an FBI agent. Yeah. As a kid. I think I brought that before. Okay. I, I always wanted to help take down like organized crime and like bad people to help people and bring justice in some aspect. Okay. I, so I, I don't know why that always stood out to me. How can we apply your current skill set to that? <laughs> you know how, you know how um, in catch me if you can, they, that they bring in this, this criminal cause he's got this expertise in counterfeit. Like how can we bring Pat into the FBI? It I don't know. It has something to do with, it has to be to do with like collecting and like someone who's like trying to scam the system. Wouldn't uh, it? 
social media, uh, <laughs> building a brand. Uh, I don't know. I'm, 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 I can I can put together jingles pretty well in my work. Jingles for the FBI. But no, Maybe seriously, the FBI YouTube channel. Yeah, there you go. I can run the FBI YouTube. No, but seriously, that was always something I grew up when I was a kid, man, because I went to the J. Edgar Hoover FBI building in D.C. And I was like, OK, I want to do this. I want to catch bad guys. And um, that was always something in my head that I, I always I always liked watching the X-Files or FBI agents. And I always thought that there was a glamour to it. There was something about, just about cracking and taking down serial killers and bad people and organized crime and the mafia. And that was always, I guess, something, I guess, exciting to me. But it has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. <laughs> well, there's games about that. So maybe you can... Uh, there you I go. Know. I can always play maybe. the Untouchables. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Pat. It's been really cool to, to hear your story and uh, to, to get some of those tips that come from very many years of uh, experience and, and, I guess, making mistakes and learning from them and, and figuring out what works and pivoting where you've had to and just keeping up with the ever-changing landscape of, of games media, I guess. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Audio Technica. You can catch Pat everywhere, social media, YouTube, Patreon, by searching for Pat the NES Punk. If you want to check out his books, you can just head over to ultimatenintendo.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please hit us with that five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. And if you really want to help us out, you can head over to 8-Bit's Kofi page. That's ko-fi.com slash weare8bit. That's where you can ship in as little as a dollar a month to support the work that we're doing over here, keeping the fun times rolling. And you can also pick up some really sweet perks like the 8-Bit Founders coin. You can follow me on social media at Jono himself. And until next episode, keep putting in work.